0: Best friend. But once you were no longer necessary to advancing his career, or once you could no longer give him something of value, he would discard you like a pair of old dirty socks. And over time, he became venomous to his subordinates, particularly generally friendly with the people above him. But to his subordinates, he became actually venomous and nearly impossible to work with to the point where the turnover. of of the number of people that worked for him was very high. You see, his model for advancement was completely opposite of what the Lord calls believers to do, and that is to advance his program by serving other people. Tonight we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. What a disgrace it is when we humans use other people to get what we want and then discard them when we have what we want. But how much more disgraceful is it when we use God in that same way? Isn't that what the world does? They use God like that. People have time for God as long as they have some kind of a need. But then when that need is met, they quickly discard Him. Or when they see that that need can't be met by God, then they quickly discard Him. But sadly, even for us as Christians, we can fall into the same godless pattern as well, where we use God to get what we want out of Him. We're happy to check off a few services a week on our checklist so long as we get what we want out of God in return. But God will not be used. And He will certainly not be discarded like a paper cup. He's not our little personal servant. We can't contain Him. We cannot manipulate Him. What God demands for us is that we come into a personal relationship with Him and that not He serve us, but that we serve Him as He desires rather than the other way around. And here we have an example of that in 1 Samuel chapter 4 of how people can turn God into their little servant. And really, it's a false form of God. It, it really becomes an idol, uh, as we'll see here in this chapter. Now, the first sentence of chapter 4 goes, as I mentioned last time, with chapter 3. So I'm going to begin with the second sentence in chapter 4 with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh. And from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So, the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he came, Behold, Eli was sitting on a seat by the road eagerly watching because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the noise of this commotion mean? Then the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, How did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phineas, are dead. And the ark of God has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For he was old, And heavy. Thus he judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter in law, Phinehas' wife, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father in law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy, Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. Israel and the Philistines fall into a very similar trap here. They both try to domesticate God. And we'll see that more really in chapters 5 through 7 as the Philistines try to take over this Ark of the Covenant. They try to contain this Ark of the Covenant. But what we'll see tonight is that God will not be domesticated. God will not be domesticated. First, we'll see that domesticating God will only result in failure, verses 1 through 9. And then domesticating God temporarily produces shame. God in verses 10 through 22. So first, domesticating God will only result in failure. Here in the first two verses, Israel is defeated in battle. But they're defeated without the Ark of God. The first sentence, again, is, is part of, I think, the previous chapter. It's talking about Samuel's rise to power. Here we're seeing the decline of Eli and his priesthood. And and the the need for Samuel to be established. So we're not going to hear anything about Samuel until we get to chapter 7 and verse 3 again. So I don't think this is about him. I don't think that he's failing in any way. He's simply growing up and learning the ways of the the priesthood, uh, of being a prophet. And at this time in Israel's history, the Philistine territories were west and south of Israel. And so they saw Israel's predicament that they were in. Israel was a fractured nation. Philistines saw this and wanted to use this as a way to expand their own territory. Israel's leader, the Philistines knew, was no longer revered among them. That is, God. And so Israel would make a perfect target for the Philistines. And so they attack and win the first battle handily. And notice how many people die in verse 2. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. Not an, not an insignificant loss by any means. This is serious, uh, a serious loss in battle. So Israel is defeated in battle without the ark, but then Israel treats the ark of God as if it is a God, small g, in verses 3 through 9. Now Israel is perplexed. In verse 3, they ask this good question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Why did the Lord strike us? They recognize, in some sense, that God had something to do with their failure to win. But instead of seeking the Lord to get the answer, what do they do? They come up with their own solution. And we see what it is right there at the end of verse 3. They don't take any time to consider, all right, let's ask of God, let's ask a man of God what we should do in this case. Instead, they say, let us take ourselves from Shiloh, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. Now, we may not have the whole story, so maybe they did ask some men of God, and those men of God happen to be the ones that are listed here at the end of verse 4, and that is Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Of course, they're not going to be the best guys to be able to tell you what's going on spiritually because they don't have any spiritual connection to God. So they come up with their own solution, and their solution is to domesticate God, to use the ark of God as a means to win a victory. Do you understand what I mean by the domestication of God? Domesticating God is trying to contain Him in something that is manageable. That's what they're doing. They're they're saying that the ark of God is God. So we're we're containing Him. We have Him with us. He is our presence. Or this Ark is our presence. Now, I don't think that's too hard for us to understand if we just think about what would happen today if the Ark of the Covenant, the actual Ark of the Covenant, was discovered. How do you think people in general, okay, not Christians necessarily, hopefully, but how do you think people in general would treat the Ark of the Covenant? How would marginal Christians, or Christians in name only, treat the Ark of the Covenant? They would treat it as if God had come to Earth. They would treat it like the golden calf. They would bow down to it. It's like the shroud when it was over here, you know, just down the road at this uh, Methodist church. You know, they they come and pay money to see it. You see, that's their their little boxed up version of God, that He has become domesticated, able to be moved, able able to be contained, able to be rationalized in one easy form. That's domestication, the domestication of God. Perhaps the modern equivalent, um, in a wrong way, obviously, is the Mary statue that you see in front of your neighbor's house or the crucifix that people wear around their neck, their neck or an angel hanging from a rearview mirror as if this is a little pocket version of God's power. And as long as we have that with us, we can be sure that we have God's power, we have God's presence with us. Those things don't indicate anything as if God will bring some kind of a blessing as long as, as one of those things is near. And this is exactly why God commanded that we not make any graven images because God cannot be contained. He cannot be domesticated. Here's how Paul puts it in Acts 17, 24 and 25. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is He served by human hands as if He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. We don't treat our God like He is the Ark of God, Ark of the Covenant of God, right? We don't treat Him like He has to be cared for, He has to be polished, covered, carried. That's not God. The Ark of God was simply a representation. It wasn't actually God. But see, Israel, I think, got it wrong. They tried to domesticate God by thinking or making the, the connection that the Ark of the Covenant was actually their God. The Ark of the Covenant belonged in the tabernacle, didn't it? It belonged where it, it, it started out, in Shiloh at that time. When was the Ark of the Covenant ever to be taken out of the tabernacle? think with me. At what time was the Ark of God ever outside the tabernacle or the temple? What's that? When they were traveling, right? Obviously, there, there's the, 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 um, the blueprints that are set up there at the, the very beginning. I think it's in Leviticus. Set up, give them the blueprints for what the Ark of the Covenant should look like, what it should contain. And so once that's made, obviously they're going to be carrying it through the wilderness. But when, it's, when, it's not, when they're not moving... Where does the ark go? It was meant to be in the tabernacle and then eventually in the temple. It was a symbol of God's presence as the temple itself was. Was it ever meant to be a lucky charm in battle? The only time I can think that it was ever in battle, you may have to correct me on this, but the only time I can think of is that Jericho. And again, this is at a time when the tabernacle had not been established. They hadn't actually made it into the promised land and established the territory. And so they take the Ark of the Covenant It actually leads their procession around the city. To show that the conquest of Jericho was first and foremost about God's victory. That God would lead the way. It was a visible symbol of the Lord's blessing but was not to be used as a lucky charm in battle, that as long as we have this ark out of the tabernacle and in battle, we're going to win. But that's what Israel does here in chapter 4. They sent for the ark in verse 4. It arrives, and notice the response in verse 5. As the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. They're not the only ones who have an, an uproar, so to speak, at the arrival of the ark. The Philistines do as well in verses 6 through 9. And the, the Philistines really adopt the same bad theology that Israel has, and that is that as long as the ark of God is there, their God is there, which is not necessarily true. Israel saw the ark of God as a god. God. And the Philistines thought the same thing. They said, if this Ark of the Covenant is here, then their gods will win. And they thought back to the stories that they had heard in Egypt and realized that, that these gods, that's how the Philistines describe it, these gods of Israel were powerful gods. And we need to we need to hope and, and we need to wish that our gods are going to do better than, than their gods. Notice in verse 9, they're confident that they can defeat this god. This is... Apparently one of the commanders speaking to the army, and he says, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been slaves to you. Therefore be men and fight. Doesn't matter what they have. Doesn't matter what what ark they have, doesn't matter what gods they have on their side, we can win if we fight. We take courage and fight. I think they adopted the same bad theology of Israel that their God, Israel's God, was small and could be domesticated. But what they didn't realize was that Israel's God is the true God who made everything, and He's not domesticated. He's not confined to that little ark that can be carried around on poles. Domesticating God will only result in failure. Secondly, we see here in verses 10-22 through that domesticating God will produce temporary shame to the name of God. Domesticating God will produce temporary shame to the name of God. In verses 10 and 11, if you thought that first defeat was bad, 4,000 people in verse 2. Look at how many they lose in verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel with the ark of God on their side were defeated. And every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. In addition to the 4,000, they already lost without the ark. Now they lose 30,000 more with the ark. And if that's not bad enough, verse 11, the ark of God was taken. What a tragedy that the ark of God was taken. What would be the front page headlines? In In the Philistine Gazette, it would say God lost. God lost the battle for Israel. God can be defeated. Their God is not better than our God. Their God is not better than us. We will win. And I'm sure that the Philistines probably partied it up that night and the next day, and they had some good laughs at the expense of Israel and her apparently weak God. And you might be thinking, why would God allow such a thing? Right? Did God not have the power to overcome the Philistines even though they didn't see Him? they didn't see God properly? Wouldn't God do better to maintain His fame among the nations and then you know, straighten out Israel later when He had time? Why let Israel be so defeated and God's name be dragged through the mud? Well, what we know and what we'll see at the end of the chapter is that the glory of God had departed from Shiloh. And God here is on a mission. God is on a mission to reclaim His glory. And He's not going to allow Israel to drag His name through the mud any longer. He's not going to be disgraced by Israel's leader who made their use of God and made it all about themselves, pleasing themselves, using God, like I started out with. He was not going to allow that anymore. So here's the point. God is not unwilling to suffer temporary shame in order to awaken His people and the nations to what kind of God He really is. Let me say that again. God is willing to suffer temporary shame, or God is not unwilling. God is willing to suffer temporary shame in order to awaken His people and the nations to what kind of God He really is. Do you believe that to be true? Will God allow Himself to suffer temporary shame in order to show who He really is? this goes along with what we talked about last week. No man of God is so high and mighty that he is untouchable to God. As if, you know, they've built up such a great empire that God can't tear them down. You see, God will suffer temporary shame from scandals from people who are supposedly great men of God like Bill Gothard or Josh Duggar or the grandson of Billy Graham. Julian to Friends, that is the nature of how God works. He allows what looks like temporary defeat where people can put all over their newspapers, God is dead. God's not winning anymore. In order to do something bigger, and that is win the greater war, which is the, 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 the fight over the fame of His name, and the vindication of His righteousness. There are dozens of examples in the Scriptures where it looked like God was clearly defeated. If you were looking on the news and you saw some of the scandals that happened, you would think that God had lost. Like Cain and Noah and Jacob and Joseph. Where's God in all this? Did He forget about... These people? What about Israel in bondage? Or Moses? Or David? Or Daniel? God seems to, in every single one of these cases, suffer temporary defeat. But God was doing something much bigger, wasn't He? We know that because we know the rest of those stories. But the best example of this principle that God is willing to suffer temporary defeat in order to win the bigger battle, in order to awaken His people and the nations to the kind of God He really is, is the cross. Angry men captured and killed the very Son of God. And if you were looking at that from a, a purely, we can say, unbiased, journalistic sort of perspective, you would see that it appeared like God had lost that he suffered defeat, that he received shame to his name because his son was dead. But in that very moment, what we have is not God's greatest defeat, is it? But his greatest triumph, isn't it? Friends, God will suffer temporary shame in order to show people who he really is. And that's what I think is happening here. Israel had was done with God. They used him for what they wanted, and then they scrapped Him. And then oh, they' they're they're suffering defeat here. We better call them back into action, and God's saying, no more. You're not going to use me like that anymore. I'm going to awaken my people to who I am. And so I'll allow you to suffer defeat and for me to suffer temporary shame in order to show that. In verses twelve through eighteen, Eli learns of Israel's defeat and the loss of the ark. One of the survivors from the battle made a point to go back to Shiloh and to tell the people. The distance between Ebenezer, the battleground, and Shiloh was about 22 miles. So it's almost a marathon that he has to run in order to give this message. And on the way, the messenger tore his clothes and poured ashes on his head to show that he was distraught, that he was in mourning because of what had happened. And it wasn't just that they lost 30,000 men, but two of those men were the priests. Eli's sons. And then, in addition to that, of course, they lost the, the Ark of the Covenant. Well, Eli in verse 13 had been waiting for someone. In fact, the text says that he was eagerly watching. But recognize that in verse 15 tells us that he could not see. Okay, so when it says he's eagerly watching, it just means like he's on guard, he's vigilant, he's sitting there at the gate as a blind man, hoping for news. But he can't see, actually. The guy probably cro- passed right in front of him. When he comes into the gate, he's wanting to hear the news, but the messenger goes first inside the city and tells all the people what happens. And when Eli hears it from the gate, he wants to hear it firsthand from the messenger to make sure that he's right. And Eli hears in verse 17 of the defeat. He also hears of the news that his two sons were dead. But I think what really alarmed him is what we see at the end of verse 17. Verse 17. And he also said, this is the messenger, the ark of God has been taken. And when he mentioned, notice, not when he mentioned the defeat or not when he mentioned that his two sons were dead, but when he mentioned that the ark of God had been taken, he fell backwards off his seat and broke his neck. But Eli was not the only one who was taken aback by the news. Phinehas' wife also was disturbed by it. In fact, she was, she was pregnant probably in her third trimester. Not sure how far along she was, but whatever the case, she wasn't ready to give birth until she heard this terrible news. And when she heard the news, she went into premature labor. She gave birth on that day, according to verse 20. And just before she died, following her pregnancy, she named her son. Verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 21. And she called the boy, Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Now, some translate Ichabod as where is the glory. But the word literally is I kabod. So, two, kind of two parts to the word. I is no, and kabod is glory. So, no glory. The glory has departed. I think the way that the text describes it is, is right. The glory has departed. Not where is the glory, but the glory has departed. It's gone. And after she names her son, she dies. And there's much truth to what she had to say. And God had departed in some sense, and the fact you know, she's thinking of it in terms of the Ark of God is gone, so God Himself is gone as well. But the truth is that God God's glory had not departed because the Ark had been captured, it was the other way around. The Ark was captured because the glory of God had already departed. God's glory was far away from Shiloh when the Ark was taken. Sometimes God allows these objects, like this great symbol that He even established, the Ark of God, He allows those objects associated with His presence to be removed to show that His special presence was already long gone. The main principle that I think we can learn from this tonight is that God is not our lucky rabbit's foot. God is not our lucky rabbit's foot and He will not be used as such. How many times are we like Israel in 1 Samuel 4? We make all of our plans and then we are at the 11th hour. We finally call out to God. We make all of our plans apart from God. And then at the final hour, when we start to get into a crisis situation, we say, help me God or else you will look like the bad guy. You will look like you don't have the power to help me out of this desperate situation. And God, you don't want shame ascribed to your name, do you? But friends, when we exclude God throughout the whole process and then call Him on Him on the last hour, that is not faith. faith. That is presumption. We are presuming that God doesn't care when He's ignored for weeks and months on end It's basically saying, "Well, well, God, here I go. I'm jumping off the pinnacle of the temple, and if you don't protect me, God, I'm falling now. If you don't protect me, you're going to look like a fool because you can't follow through on your promise to glorify yourself through me." And how many times do we do exactly that with the way that we live? We ignore God when it comes to a major decision. We ignore God when it comes to a relationship choice or a job choice. And then, after ignoring God for so long, we come to a place where we are desperate and we cry out to God and say, Okay, God, it's time for you to work. You know what God must be thinking? You know, I'm not your waiter. I'm not your genie in the bottle that you can just call on whenever you want, like Israel did in battle. They're at their desperate situation. Okay, let's call in the reinforcements. Remember, we have this lucky charm Ark of the Covenant. Let's bring that in. God must be thinking, why don't you come to me first before you make that huge choice? Now, let me be clear that that calling on God for help at the end, is better than not calling on God at all. Okay, so maybe we have ignored God all along the way. Calling on God is 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 better than not calling on God. But what I'm saying is we missed the point back here. And we wonder why God doesn't turn out our circumstances like we want them to be turned out. The problem is not in calling out to God for deliverance. The The problem is ignoring him all along the way before the crisis comes. Tim Chester gives a helpful illustration in his commentary. He writes that it's too easy for us who have been Christians for a long time to treat God like a waiter of ours. You know, we don't have a close relationship with him. The only reason we know his name is because it's on his name tag, right? And the only reason that we need him is when we the only reason that we talk to him is because we need something. We call him over when we need a refill or when we spilled something or when we need to get our bill. We don't let Him sit at our table and we don't relate with Him except as our servant. I'm not saying that you should you know, invite your waiter to sit down. He's probably not going to do that. What I'm saying is we shouldn't treat God like that. We wonder why God is not pleased when we treat Him as our waiter. The truth is that we have it all backwards, don't we? truth is we are the waiter and God is the diner and we must answer to his every call how many times has God's glory departed how many times in our lives or in our churches has God's glory departed we who once stood for the fundamentals of the faith we churches who've done the same Some of these buildings are just a pile of rubble or sold to a Catholic church. Or their building is just a shell of what it used to be. Churches who over time began to presume upon grace and only call on Him in times of trouble. The doors close eventually. But God doesn't depart when the doors close or when they give the keys over to another religious organization. God's glory was long gone because they, that church, has ignored God for too long. And God's saying, listen, I'll be happy for your name to get off the church. The one that says church, that's the gathering of Christ's people. I'll be happy when your name's off of that. you know why? Because my glory is not there. God will, will gladly suffer temporary shame in order to make it clear to his people who he really is. Let's pray. Father, thankful for the seriousness of our relationship with you. We don't want to take it lightly by any means because we see, like Israel, it's all too easy to be at a time of peace and safety, rest. Like Joshua and his generation was, but not too many generations later, are we where we see these people? Same, same ethnic group of people, but a group that has long turned away from you, and have turned your objects into idols, have turned them into lucky rabbit's, foots, uh, rabbits' feet. And Lord, we, we don't want to do that by any means in the way that we treat you. We don't want to treat you like a waiter, but we admit, Lord, that we do that at times. We ignore you throughout many um, processes of choice, and we don't call on you until we're at our, our last string, when we're at the 11th hour, when the crisis is at its worst, and we wonder why you're not pleased. Lord, we pray that You would help us to trust in You and to depend upon You all along the way. Not just when crisis comes and not to treat You like our genie in the bottle. And Lord, we pray that You would grant us as a church many more decades where Your presence would reside in this place among these people and among the next generation of people who come and take our place. Lord, we don't want... Ichabod to be written on this group of people. We don't want Ichabod to be written on this building. We want to, to go on for years proclaiming Your name and speaking wisely and truthfully about who You are and about, your great, uh, about our great Savior, Your Son. And so we pray that You would strengthen us for this task. We, we can't do this on our own. We need Your help. So we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.